You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Today I'm here with Dr. Suzanne Fogger. Dr. Fogger has over 40 years of experience as a psych mental health nurse. She also has 12 years um, experience as a U.S. Air Force Army nurse. I'm sorry, U.S. Air Force nurse. Don't kill me for saying Army. That's really a faux pas. A U.S. Air Force Nursing Corps. She currently practices as a board-certified nurse practitioner at the 1917 clinic here at Birmingham. She treats patients there with HIV and substance abuse disorders. She is our School of Nursing's consultant on addictions and substance abuse, and she serves on the board of directors for the International Nurses Society on Addiction. She is also on the editorial board of the Journal of um, of Addictions Nursing. So she is one busy lady. We are lucky to have her on our faculty and lucky to have her with us here today. Good afternoon, Dr. Fogger. Thank you very much. So I think most people in our audience have have at least heard of the opioid epidemic. So I'm wondering if you can help us understand it and how it's changed over time. Well, I could start back in the 90s when the catalyst for the opioid epidemic is believed to have begun. Some of the components include the fact that pain became the fifth vital sign and that pain became a more focused piece of the clinical assessment. At the same time, drug companies manufactured a new form of opiate that they billed as being um, non-dependence and non-addicting forming so that people believed that if they took this medication uh, that it would relieve their pain and they'd be able to continue life without pain. Uh, but unfortunately came to find that the medication that was not supposed to be addicting ended up becoming addicting. So exposure to an opioid increases an individual's risk of becoming um, addicted to an opioid. And so as more people were exposed to opioids by that uh, fact alone, more people developed issues related to opioids. And at this point in time, a lot of people have been on opioids and are become dependent on them, which is a hair different than becoming addicted. So that's a good point. What is the difference between dependence and addiction? Well, in the sense that when we look at the changing face of addictions with people having gone from pain pills to the um, legislative and many times um, efforts of providers to restrict the amount of prescription pain medicines provided, that people have gone to other things because they absolutely have to have the, uh, the drug in order to feel normal. So by having gone from pain pills to other sources, uh, pain pills on the street are quite expensive, but heroin, which was increasing supply coming up from Mexico, became more available and cheaper so that people who have to have a substance to kind of feel normal seek out other ways to get there, and heroin was it. So moving to heroin, the problem with heroin is is that because it's illegal and there's no way of knowing what the strength is and whether or not it's been adulterated with other types of of, uh, simulated pain medication artificially created, um, then people began dying because they had no way of knowing how much they were getting. So that particular piece became what happened to get us into the opiate epidemic as people died that no one even knew that they were using um, opioids and they were found uh, basically down. And so 
that kind of started this, that people didn't know anyone was using because they kept it secret. Now, the difference between dependence and addiction, dependence is going to happen if you use an opioid for a couple of weeks on a regular and routine basis. So if I have a chronic, if I have an acute pain issue and I'm taking, say, um, an oxycodone uh, three or four times a day for my chronic, for my acute pain, after a couple of weeks, if I suddenly stop taking four of them a day to taking none of them, I'm going to have withdrawal symptoms because I've become accustomed to, it's become part of my normal, that I'll have um, diarrhea, I may have nausea, uh, insomnia, uh, anxiety, sweats, uh, the goose flump, the goose flesh that one would call um, part of it. And I just feel like I had the flu. So when people have that symptomology, it's pretty miserable, and it's also painful. So people seek relief, which usually is in the form of more of an opioid. Now, an addiction is something that has to meet criteria by the um, diagnostic and statistical manual that's put out by the American Psychiatric Association called the DSM-5. For simplicity's sake, it's easier to consider that addictions, the person has to kind of meet the four C's. And the four C's include loss of control. So they take more than they had intended over a longer period of time, that they have a compulsion to use, that it is not unlike when you're really, really wanting something and it never leaves your mind, like if you wanted a piece of chocolate, that you think about it all day long until you can go get it. That they also have consequences that are negative, that they either have um, medical consequences from using or that they fail to show up to their job. Um, They may take to doing illegal things, including selling themselves for sex and drugs, or they may take up stealing. So consequences is is the third C. And then finally, cravings is a component of it. And cravings is this uh, undefinable need for it in order to feel uh, relief. So it is kind of a a primal urge that an individual has that they have to have this particular substance. So no one goes out with the idea that they're planning on becoming addicted to a substance. Many times it's about the fact they get exposed to it and makes them feel better and that in the process of feeling better, come to find that the medication um, relieves stress, reduces anxiety, and so it becomes a matter of seeking the thing that makes a person feel better. So uh, people who have an addiction have an underlying illness, and if we consider the disease model of addictions as an illness, it, it kind of takes the um, judgmental piece out of it that no one chooses this. What are some risk factors for becoming addicted versus just dependent? Okay. Well, in that sense, exposure to an opioid increases your risk. So if people don't have exposure to an opioid, it is uh, kind of what is beneficial to a person. Just never have exposure to it in the first place. So limiting the amount of exposure is the next piece so that if you needed uh, a pain medication, to limit the period of time in which you took it for, and that you take it only when the pain had gotten to the point that you couldn't stand it or that you needed to take it in order to function. 
Uh, and sometimes it's a matter of just recognizing that uh, when you have severe arthritis, for example, that you're going to have pain and that medication alone is not going to make the pain go away. And then it requires other ways to manage the pain, such as uh, finding distraction or exercise therapy to help strengthen the muscle tone. Okay, great. So we talk about what practicing nurses, you know, we kind of want to talk about what they need to know about taking care of these patients that are either dependent or addicted. What are the differences in those patients for us? Well, a person who's dependent is, for example, someone who has uh, chronic pain and may be maintained on an opioid for a prolonged period of time. Um, the CDC came out with a guideline, uh, I believe it was in 2016, uh, in terms of managing chronic pain in primary care settings. And their suggestions were essentially looking at finding the lowest dose that the person's comfortable with, communicating with the person about the fact that what do they want to do with this medication, and essentially supporting the patient to function as, as well as possible and to also find ways to help them uh, return to function as much as possible. Um, so that particular piece can be helpful. Um, one of the other things that nurses can do is they can look at encouraging people to be able to manage themselves as much as possible without drugs to help people find other ways to comfort themselves. What kinds of things would you recommend for that? Uh, in particular, with people with chronic pain, finding some method of, of exercise and strengthening as well as being part of a community. Mm -hmm. Because many times people end up who have chronic pain are isolated in their homes and that's not much being part of life. Right. So part of the pain management focus might be to help people discover what is it that you want to have happen? What is it that you want to do? And let's see what, if we can't figure out how to get you there. Exercise therapy is always helpful, whether it comes in a form of balance um, improvement or swimming is always helpful. But many of the patients that we see haven't got access to swimming pools or other forms of, of exercise. So then it's about coming up with something that the patient can do. And it may require that the nurse think very hard about, okay, so you can't afford um, exercise equipment, but I bet you can do and work with the patient to come up with uh, what they can do. I would look at motivational interviewing, which the concept there is, is that you're part of the patient's team mm -hmm. and that you're being supportive of what their goals are and where it is that they want to go. Some people aren't ready to change and some people um, really need assistance to get there. So we're talking a little bit about the chronic issues, but there's also an acute pain that patients might have, say from an accident or, or a car accident or something like that. So how is that different and how can we manage that in those patients? Well, because acute and chronic pain use different pathways. It is appropriate to treat people who have acute severe pain with an opioid. Um, using the shortest period of time that you possibly can, but taking into account that folks who have uh, trauma, who have bone fractures, are going to have pain, 
and consider that if somebody has a sprained ankle, using something like uh, Tylenol or Motrin might be more appropriate than using a Lortab. So considering how long it's going to be, what the level of pain one might anticipate goes along with that particular piece um, is helpful. If people are inpatient, then it's appropriate to treat them. Um, and individuals who have an opioid dependence, a known opioid dependence, who are in a car accident or something, um, they are not going to respond to pain medication the same way that you or I might because their tolerance level for an opioid is much higher. In those particular folks, uh, you would maybe give them medication and, and they don't get the relief that you would anticipate. Uh, that's what you can expect for somebody who's got an opioid dependence, that medication is going to be little or no effect with them. And consulting the pharmacist at that point in time and discovering what, what methods of treating their acute pain is going to be important because uh, treating people's pain is really important and no one should suffer, uh, particularly when they've got acute pain. So even if somebody has got a known addiction, uh, to an opioid, they still need their pain treated. But again, I recommend treating and also consulting pharmacy as well as uh, the addiction consultant in the hospital if you're inpatient. So is there a typically an addiction consultant? Well, UAB is particularly important because particularly fortunate because we have several addiction specialists at UAB. Not every place has them, but I'm sure that most uh, physicians could probably, if they were looking, be able to contact someone uh, in their network who has a, an addiction experience for consultation. Um, for nurses, if they're looking for additional resources, sometimes the government's got some great websites. Um, for example, SAMHSA has got a great website of all kinds of information about addiction and okay. opioids. So if one's curious, there are great websites out there. And it is not a matter of, of having to hunt real far for this stuff. Um, for nurses as well, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing has got a great website for learning about addictions in nursing, as well as dealing with the impaired nurse. So I recommend um, that particular website for the National Council of State Boards of Nursing. Okay, great. Those are great resources. Just backing up a little bit, we talked about if, it ha if the patient has a known dependency or addiction, but what if we don't know or what if the patient is not forthcoming with that information? How would I know that they had this problem and need to treat them a little bit differently? There's some signs of withdrawal that I might see? Um, if a person comes into the hospital, and let's say that they're involved in a car accident for simplicity's sake, and they're in the hospital bed and that you're, you're treating them, uh, in the process of doing the, the initial assessment on the person, you might look for physical symptoms of the fact that they might have been using. Um, perhaps if they're heavy smokers, which a lot of times they're concurrent uh, underlying addictions such as either alcohol or tobacco use disorders, uh, to look for the fingertips being particularly stained, uh, which may indicate a high level of nicotine use, to look for uh, 
track marks, which is basically scarring in the intercubulary mm-hmm. or other areas of the body, and then uh, behaviors that are inconsistent with what you would anticipate for if you treat a person for pain medication and they're continuing to complain about it, this isn't working, I'm still in pain, um, I need more than this. So it's kind of a matter of when you anticipate that this is outside of the normal uh, and people's behavior gets a little on the extreme side, it's, it's kind of like, I'm not really sure what it is I'm looking at, but this is not what I would anticipate. So sometimes people are forthcoming and saying I've been using um, and that to drop back and to make readjustments there. Um, but some people are going to try to keep it secret because having an opioid addiction and using illicit drugs such as heroin is illegal. Right. And they don't want anyone to put them in jail or arrest them for their behavior, so they're going to try to keep it quiet as long as possible. So signs and symptoms of opiate withdrawal, again, would be uh, pupillary changes in which you'd have um, dilated pupils when people go into withdrawal. You'll have the nausea and the vomiting and diarrhea, um, muscle aches and pains, and people just look like they got the flu. So mm. you kind of say... It didn't look like this uh, a couple hours ago. So what do you suppose is going on? Because people can tell you, uh, you know, um, this is because I I usually get a fix about this point. So if they are clean with you and tell you what's going on, um, then it's always helpful uh, to kind of begin to treat them. If they do say that they've got an underlying addiction they've been using, to kind of let them know not to take anything that anybody brings in from the outside because it's really difficult to treat people for pain when um, they have people bringing in stuff from the outside. Right. I can imagine. So if I, if I suspect that this is going on but the patient still hasn't actually told me, how do I even form that question with them to approach that subject? Because I can imagine it's going to be very in- intimidating and possibly scary for them. Sometimes it's just a matter of being comfortable enough to say, uh, okay, and this is part of the admission process. Um, before we go too much farther, it's really important for you to tell me if you're taking any other drugs or medications outside of what we've already talked about because Knowing is going to help me treat you better. And if you're used to taking something and you start going into withdrawal, I won't really know how to take care of you. So just saying that, and people will either tell you the truth or they won't. And it may be a couple hours later or maybe tomorrow before they tell you. But it'll help clear up the picture, particularly if you're not making sense out of what's going on with their vital signs um, that are inconsistent with what you would anticipate. Great. We've got a question from our audience. Can advanced practice nurses become addiction specialists? Yes, they can. Uh, there is a organization uh, right now that has a certification for um, nurses in addictions. The requirement is just time practicing in the field uh, and many CEs in order to get that, but that would be the CARN, which is a Certified Addictions Registered Nurse Advanced Practice, and that would be through um, the 
ENSA, which is the International Nurses Society on Addiction. So if you go to their website, you'd be able to find the certification through there. Okay, great. I think that that would be a, a great resource for certain hospitals to have. Um, those advanced practice nurses. It's also available for nurses who are who are working in addictions that they also can become certified as addictions nurses without the without even being a nurse practitioner. That's correct. They Great. have two levels. It's okay. sort of it's not unlike the ANCC where they have um, the generalist and then this, those who specialize at the um, pre masters level and then those who are advanced practice. Great. Um, so we talked a little bit about the pharmacist as a resource. I think that's, I mean, I, I don't often think about calling them for some reason, and I'm sure that that's my fault, but do pharmacists specialize or are they just trained and should know all of these things? Um, I'm sure that there are pharmacists who specialize, but generally because of the training that they've had, plus uh, the drugs and medications are their specialty areas. So because part of your job is to help keep a person healthy. Part of their job is to have a really good understanding of the pharmacology. Yeah. Uh, so it's sort of a matter of utilizing your entire team. And the pharmacists are usually readily available and happy to help. How, how do family members and friends play a part in this treatment? Hmm. The treatment piece. Or the just the care of... Of them while they're in the hospital, for example? Um, I would say that because family members are really important to have them understand not to bring in anything, any medication or drugs that the patient may need slash want, um, that they please don't do that. And alcohol, please no alcohol while you're in the hospital. Um, Support for the family and knowing that if an individual's got a chronic pain problem, that oftentimes it's a family problem. Therapy is really helpful for family members as well as it is for the individual who has the issue uh, because family members have to deal with the stress of day-to-day -day figuring out how to manage this person. Right. And unfortunately, if the individual has an underlying addiction that's in an active state, uh, it is difficult to work with someone who, because their brain has been hijacked by the drug, and that's kind of a concept that I think of when dealing with somebody who's in active addiction, that their primary goal, because the brain is hijacked by uh, the drug, is to get more of the drug. And that includes telling you any story that I can, mm. um, being particularly conniving about how I go about doing business, and because ultimately it's about protecting the very thing that I need the most, which is to continue to have this drug. Um, so the fact that an individual sick is really difficult to look at somebody and determine they are, but because um, opiate use really has a tendency to uh, become so consuming and th the thing that makes opiate use disorders really problematic at this time is because of the introduction of these synthetic drugs mm -hmm. that when we're just talking about pain medication it was about the fact that people keep upping the dose until they end up having too much or they take other drugs with it and end up in respiratory depression and die that way but with the fentanyl introduction and, and carfentanyl introduction mixed in with the heroin, when people use, then there's no turning back. 
we're looking at maybe four or five minutes after they begin ingestion of the substance that they die. So it's sort of a matter of what makes uh, opiate use disorder much more of an acute issue than uh, illnesses such as alcoholism and, and nicotine dependence, which kill far more people. The death is acute and sudden, and there is no there's no room for helping anybody because they there is no coming back from an overdose for some folks. Now, with the introduction of naltrexone being spread out uh, more in communities, which is Narcan, um, people are being revived when they're found. But there are folks who are not found and are not revived. So it's sort of a matter of, because this is uh, an epidemic where if we look at what do we have control over, and it's sort of like um, not prescribing liberally to people, um, being aware of some of the symptoms of the disease process of, of addiction, the compulsions, the cravings, um, then just kind of being as supportive as possible, encouraging people to get help. What kind of resources are there for nurses who are discharging patients that have been taken care of in the hospital, so we've figured out that they've got this underlying addiction and they and their family are leaving to go home. I just feel like I would want to give them some resource and some support, but I wouldn't know where to begin. Well, in the sense is that because you have resources to contact the addiction specialist within the hospital, um, what resources are available, usually within community mental health clinics, uh, they may or may not have resources in, that are specializing in addictions, but as more of the programs become integrated so that mental health and addictions integrate, as well as mental health addictions integrate into primary care, that there should be more availability. Barring that, um, it is sort of a matter of there are, um, how do I say this, but peer-supported groups mm -hmm. out there like Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous but that requires the individual agree that they should attend those things. And depending on what state of the process they're in, they may not even see that they've got an issue. Family members can be referred to Al-Anon, mm -hmm. uh, which Al-Anon is a very great support for family members to learn how to take care of themselves and not respond to the crazy-making behavior of the individual who's actively using. So um, sometimes it's about knowing the resources in your community, uh, reaching out to the available resources, and perhaps even Googling in your county or parish, if you're in Louisiana, uh, what resources are available to you. You don't have to know everything. You just have to kind of be able to find one person who can help you. Oh, that's great. So we've got about just a few more minutes left, and we've got a couple of questions um, from our audience. So, Dr. Fogger, how did you get into this field of expertise? Uh, purely accidental. <laughs> when I was in the Air Force, I was um, a young captain, and I was transferred to the alcohol rehab floor. And found that it was like initially I was like, well, I like drinking beer. This is going to require that I cut back on my <laughs> drinking. Um, so having begun to work with folks who got into trouble with their drinking and, and recognizing how much 
substance use affects individuals in all aspects of their life. I became a, um, a substance use counselor at that point, as well as a, I became nurse manager of that unit in the Air Force. And that was uh, 1988, 1990, right around and through there. And that was the beginning of understanding about how individuals who have addictions generally are perceived as being weak-willed or mm. are just not perceived of as being people who really need help. Because folks who don't see that they have a problem are extremely difficult to deal with. So it's a matter of, of utilizing the principles of, of sometimes when people are ready to change, they're ready to change. But oftentimes it requires a skilled person to be able to present things to them so that they kind of get it that even though you don't recognize you've got a problem because your brain's lying to you, that given the evidence, like your liver function tests are, are um, really elevating and, and if you continue on this path, you're going to die. Um, it, it is very rewarding to help people change their lives yeah. so that they um, get better. It's a remitting illness, and it's considered a chronic remitting illness, which means you look at it the same way as you treat diabetes. We've got time, I think, for one more quick question. Are there any new drug therapies coming to help those with pain that can't be controlled? Ooh, that's a trick question. <laughs> uh, drug therapies. Because pain management is multifaceted and that many times the individual psychiatric makeup contributes to the pain a great deal. It is, uh, that's a difficult question to answer because, uh, because if you consider that pain is not a one issue but a complex issue, uh, I would say not necessarily drug therapies but other ways to get a person to be as strong as possible despite the fact that they have chronic pain. It's sort of like you can live um, even though you have pain and it's helping people to recognize that they have a purpose in life and helping them find the purpose. I think that's about all we have time for today. Thank you so much for a great discussion. We really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash c forward slash Nursing Network.